Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and this is Good God, where we are focusing on the question of poverty during this series. And today, my guest is Jason Coker, Dr. Jason Coker, Reverend Dr. Jason Coker, uh, who has both been a pastor and an organizational leader and he is now the national director of a program called Together We Hope, which is a rural development coalition that addresses poverty in, uh, especially in rural areas. And so, Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you for being on here. Thanks so much, George. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and to I know you have a lot of folks that listen in uh, to you. So it's a, it really is an honor to be here and to kind of raise the voice of rural poverty in America. Uh, Together for Hope is, uh, we fight that every day, all day yes. long. So, thank you. Well, now, just as full disclosure, Jason and I go back a ways, uh, and uh, we uh, have worked together uh, for one year. He was on the staff of the church I pastor here in Dallas, Wilshire Baptist, as our missions minister. Uh, and uh, he went to become a pastor in Connecticut uh, for a season of his life, where uh, he also worked uh, on his PhD at Yale uh, University or Yale Divinity School, which? Well, I, I did my master's at Yale Div School and then did a PhD at Drew University. Thank you. I, I mis got those reversed. So there you go. Okay, great. And interestingly enough, your work uh, in the New Testament uh, book of James was on poverty, wasn't it? And how uh, the faith community addresses that. Yeah, the, uh, the first book I wrote was uh, James in Postcolonial Perspective, uh, the letter as nativist discourse. And it really talked about uh, how James uh, and, and the whole letter uh, faced down the Roman Empire uh, in, in some pretty profound ways, specifically around economics and, and land ownership. Uh, if you look at James chapter five, one through six, uh, that certainly deals with land ownership. James chapter two, one through 13 deals with uh, people in fine clothing and gold rings coming into your sanctuary and how there was this uh, indictment against showing partiality to the wealthy uh, and then over against the poor. And so there's a lifting up of the poor in James uh, for sure. Now, Jason, to hear you read the Bible like that um, would open you to the criticism from the right that you're really a Marxist after all, aren't you? You're, you're doing a, a kind of economic, socioeconomic uh, reading of the Bible. And uh, I actually had uh, someone who is a newspaper uh, a columnist uh, here in Dallas say that preachers today are going to be called before the throne of judgment because they're reading the Bible in just that way. Uh, well, I invite those critics to actually read the Bible and uh, <laughs> actually read the Communist Manifesto. That's it's worth it's worth a read. It's actually a pretty short document. I'll never forget the first time I read the Manifesto. I had to reread it again because I was waiting to, you know, to read the part with the devil with horns. Uh, and it's actually um, there, there's some good things there uh, that, that's important to kind of consider. Well, it's, it's sort of a utopian vision, isn't it, really? That's, and that's the, you know, human nature gets in the way of these things, but... Uh, and right. look, a good utopia is hard to find, let's face yeah. it. <laughs> that's right, exactly. All right, but let's get 
let's get down in the weeds a little bit about this matter of poverty because we are currently involved in a, an enormous expansion of wealth in this country, uh, in our own country, and yet an enormous contraction of wealth at the very same time. So we're, we're moving in two different directions, aren't we? Yeah. And so what's your take on the state of our uh, adequacy in terms of what people have and what they need in, in, in America today? So two things come to my mind immediately. One is the economic inequality in the United States of America right now is greater than it ever has been in the history of this country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is very hard to kind of comprehend. But right. uh, during the robber baron periods, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, mm -hmm. uh, the Rockefellers, economic inequality was less than what it is today. Wow. And so we live in unprecedented moment of economic inequality mm -hmm. and that economic inequality is weighted towards the wealthiest people in this country. Yes. So the threshold for a family of four uh, to be in the top 10% of income earners, a family of four would need to make $114,000 a year. So that means 90% of the United States of America lives on less than $114,000 a year for a family of four. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're making $114,000 a year and, uh, and you have a family of four uh, and you're living anywhere close to a city, you know that you're not, you're, you're not saving a lot of money. You probably have credit card debt. You certainly have student loan debt and you're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, all that to say that 90% of this country lives on less than that. Yes. that. That's the kind of country we live in right now. It's very hard economically to survive in, in the United States of America, much less thrive. So economic inequality comes to mind. The other one is the movement away from the narrative of poverty from an individualist perspective to a systemic perspective. And when you look at poverty from a systemic perspective, you automatically have to pay attention to policy. Uh, poverty in America is not an individual problem. Poverty in America is a policy problem. Since 1980, we've been uh, walking away from uh, the New Deal and dismantling tax structures that supported the social safety net for 40 years, most of my life. Uh, and right now, we, we do not care for the poor in this country. We actually blame them for being poor. So policies like NAFTA may have been good for business, but they were terrible for American laborers. Uh, when China entered into the, uh, uh, um, the world, um, oh my goodness, what's the? World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization, WTO. Uh, that that was a huge issue in rural America. So our farmers, uh, and, and not just the farmers, the landowners, but the laborers who worked for them, all of a sudden had to compete against China uh, and, and things of that nature on a global level. So even in rural space, uh, there was a loss of jobs, and those jobs became devalued uh, from, a, from a labor perspective uh, through national policy. So uh, policy creates the massive poverty that we have. And we, we do not live in a country that full of, of lazy people. 
We are still one of the most hardworking countries in the world, and our people just don't have the jobs because those jobs aren't in America anymore. Uh, so that's, that's a real thing. Now, let's stop there for a moment and consider the irony uh, that the very people you're talking about who are in more rural settings and who are hardworking people and who have been most deeply... Uh, affected negatively by globalization and by policy are yet um, people who have conservative values and politically are voting against their own interest. Do you have a sense of why that is? Uh, there, I think there is, uh, in, to, uh, to a certain degree, uh, there are uh, rural spaces are more conservative in general. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and, and together for hope, we look at those 301 counties of persistent rural poverty in America. So persistent rural poverty means it's a rural county. Uh, it has 20 percent or more of that population living below the federal poverty line for the last 30 years. Wow. And there's 301 of those counties. Now, those counties, if you look at a map, cluster into what we call five ethno-geographies of persistent rural poverty. You have Appalachia, you have the Mississippi River Delta, you have the Black Belt, which goes from Alabama to Southern Virginia, you have the Rio Grande Valley, which is the Texas-Mexico border, and then you have native lands, which are mostly Native Americans. So persistent rural poverty in America is white, it's black, it's brown, and it's native. And, it, and, and those regions suffer from economic deprivation, not because people are lazy, but if you look at those areas, you talk about the, the movement away from coal, as it, that, that's a collapse of an entire industry. You have the mechanization of labor in the Delta Black Belt and Rio Grande Valley. That is a devaluation of human labor, a movement away from human labor. Uh, and so in most of the regions, uh, or policy, you know, with NAFTA and the manufacturing jobs moving uh, offshore and out of, out of country. In every one of those regions, you've had industry that has abandoned labor. And that is exactly the cause of the kind of unemployment that exists there. And it's called rural overpopulation. Doesn't mean there's too many people that live there. It just means that the people who do live there, don't there aren't enough jobs for them. So they're, they're literally abandoned by industry uh, and, and are stuck. So what's the answer to that? Because, you know, we, we pride ourselves on having a free market uh, and an approach that basically says if a company can't make money here, they can take their business elsewhere uh, if they need cheaper labor or whatever. And then there's a kind of breaking of the sort of covenant of community that existed at one time between say that factory or that farm and that particular community in a rural place or that mine say. Uh, now, you know, in a, in a more managed economy, which uh, in its more extreme form would be say uh, China, uh, there is a deliberate attempt to manipulate how the marketplace operates and take care of uh, what happens when you're going to shift priorities in the market. But, but in our culture, 
Uh, government is not supposed to do that uh, directly. That's sort of left to the private sector to do. And anytime government starts to get into that, we are concerned about, again, a more socialist uh, incursion into our, into our model. How do we live between those two models in a way that's constructive and that addresses this persistent problem of poverty? Well, I think history is a great example of that. If you look at the, the, the economy of the United States after the Great Depression and the movement, uh, the, the work of the New Deal uh, with FDR, mm-hmm. you, you had the, uh, the breaking up of monopolies, uh, the move uh, to you, you know, the, the heavy taxation on the wealthiest people in this country. Mm-hmm. And it basically took money from the top and invested it in this, the people of this country. And, and it r- immediately rose the bottom, you know, the, the people who were at the very bottom began to move into a middle class. And that was the per- that period between the beginning of the New Deal and 1978, 1980 was some of the most, gr- the greatest economic production this country's ever had. Right. And I really do think it's the nostalgia of that period that is the power behind Make America Great Again. Uh, there really was less economic inequality there, in spite of the fact that it was much more systemic. Well, I don't say more systemic racism, but uh, mm-hmm. the racism was more blatant. It was during Jim Crow era. Um, and yet the economy functioned better, even within minority communities. Uh, you, you look at post Jim Crow uh, and the dismantling of black businesses uh, and, and black uh, uh, H- HBCUs, uh, it, black institutions in general have suffered since the dismantling of Jim Crow right. because of racism. Uh, but all that to be said, uh, during the, the time of our, our greatest social safety net, this country had the greatest amount of economic production it's ever had. Right. And when we started dismantling that and rolling back New Deal tax cuts to the wealthiest, we began to pull, literally pull America to the extremes from the high, the high poverty, high wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now we live in that space of economic inequality. And we're being challenged now by a China and a Russia that is hyper-capitalist mm-hmm. uh, and is forcing, and we feel that pressure to even be more deregulated mm-hmm. uh, and free market driven, uh, mm-hmm. but we don't factor into real costs to things. And, and that uh, econo- ecologically, that's, it's destroying the world. So we do need more regulations to, to make sure we uh, don't have unfettered capitalism. Uh, it, even a Harvard business professor, uh, there's a new book out sitting right over there, uh, Reimagining Capitalism on, in a World on Fire. And mm-hmm. she talks about how to calculate real costs and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when you have free market tends to manipulate uh, prices too, uh, to the benefit of those who are wealthy. So it, it is, uh, it's certainly complex, but like I said, poverty is an issue of policy and it'll take policy to change it. We've been, we've been, we, it, George, we have only passed one federal policy since 1980 whose purpose was to help the most vulnerable in this society. And it was the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> and look at what we've done. 
Yeah, yeah. and look at what we've tried to do to that since it's become the law of the land. Okay, so it, Jason, for those who are listening to what you're saying mm -hmm. uh, and who would say, uh, that's fine if you want to work on that as a, you know, in a nonprofit and all of that, but you're getting out of your lane here if you're talking about what religious communities ought to be doing, the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the you know, religious communities should pay attention to the spiritual lives of people and not get into economic policy and politics and policy and all these sorts of things because now we, we, we can't be experts in that. We have to leave that to economists. We have to leave that to business people because that's their sphere of expertise. Yeah. What do you say to those who would make critique of religious communities and people like you and me, we get this all the time, yeah, uh, but, I, but I think articulating why we're talking about this and why we think we might have something to offer is, is worth part of the conversation here. Uh, I would argue up and down that yes, this is political. Mm -hmm. And if people of, of, of ethics, people with morals don't speak into the political, what should we expect from the political? Yeah. I mean, it demands that. And yeah. it is a moral issue. I mean, there is a little book in the, in the New Testament called James. Uh, <laughs> and and in, that, uh, in that book, and I'll go back to it because I've spent like almost 20 years of my life on those five chapters. Um, there's a section that says, what good is your faith if you say to somebody who's hungry and naked, uh, be clothed and well fed, <laughs> go in peace. Yes. Uh, that is faith without works. And according to that little book of the Bible, that is dead. And it's not just dead because it's a dead faith. It's dead because it leads that person who is hungry and naked to their death. Well, uh, and let's, let's go back to the Hebrew scriptures as well. Uh, because so... Israel was born as a people out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, they were brought out of uh, an economic situation where uh, they were being oppressed economically. They were not personally profiting. They were profiting only their owners, so to speak. And then when they leave Egypt, uh, they are given bread and manna in the wilderness and quail to eat and water from a rock as a sort of sign of God's provision for them. But they are also instructed that they are supposed to take care of one another, that they are not supposed to abuse laborers, that they're supposed to pay for their work. And they are to create a model of a civilization of a people that would teach others not to be like Egypt. You know, don't uh, don't abuse your workers, but treat them fairly. And all through the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and even in the Psalms, there is this, you know, commitment to righteousness and justice and to fairness for laborers and, and those sorts of things. This is not something we are making up because we want to be critical of one party or one uh, or, or, or somehow right. call our own country into question as if we're being unpatriotic. This is really a deeply spiritual matter, isn't it? It absolutely is. And look, um, since 1980, we've had a couple of 
democratic president, right? Uh, and in spite of that, uh, you, you Democrat, Republican, uh, no. or whatnot, there's only been one federal policy for yeah. the most vulnerable. All the other federal policies that have been passed have benefited the wealthiest people in this country. Right. That is a, that is, that is a fact. And, in, and, in, and so it's a bipartisan attempt to make the wealthiest the wealthiest. <laughs> you know? well, I mean, and, you know. and, but it is also true that capitalism creates wealth in a way that no other system has ever accomplished. And, and that in that sense, we, you know, Bill Gates will repeatedly say that we have virtually stamped out abject poverty worldwide in our generation, which is an extraordinary achievement. But it is not only capitalism that has done that, it is also humanitarianism. Uh, it, is, it is also the efforts of people of faith. So now I want to take you even more so into this role of religious communities, faith communities, because uh, there are a lot of people who would say, you know, uh, this is taking care of the poor is really the work of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, if, the, it, you know, we get tax deductions for contributions to our religious communities, churches, synagogues, mosques, religious nonprofits, they're the ones that should be doing this work, not the government. Uh, so, because the government has a kind of coercive tax system that forces you to pay for something, uh, but this is voluntary. And when it's voluntary, you you know, you, you have a tendency to be able, you know, to motivate people in a way that, uh, that you can't necessarily if it's just coming from the government. But the scale of this challenge is the thing that I think people do not realize fully. There's a role for, for the faith community, but there's a role for government too. Can you talk about how the faith community can become a kind of best practice modeling that then can be scaled on a larger basis. Well, you, you have the kind of the social contract, which is the people of the country or the labor business and the government. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a balance in the social contract that where, where the government has uh, responsibility to business and to people. Labor has a responsibility to business and government and business has a responsibility to government and people. And when any of that gets out of whack, it doesn't work right. Right. I mean, and mm -hmm. so th this, we're talking about how to manage that social contract, uh, almost in a utilitarian sense, like for the greatest amount of good, for the greatest amount of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that's that's the first thing that comes to mind, George, about uh, how to structure that. But uh, faith, the faith community as a model, uh, I would say that every religion that I know of has deep moral convictions about how you care for the most vulnerable. You talked about the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Jewish community has deep convictions, scriptural convictions about how to care for the orphan and the widow. Mm -hmm. um, our own Christian tradition has the same. And Islam, one of the four, uh, the five pillars of Islam is almsgiving. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, you know, Buddhists, uh, strict Buddhists don't eat uh, meat because they don't want to harm another living being. So th there is deep 
uh, moral conviction and religious conviction around how we treat each other mm-hmm. in this world. And it comes from the way we understand God. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think there's something deeply important about uh, 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 being human and understanding your role uh, and responsibility towards another human being mm-hmm. uh, and on an individual basis, but also on a systemic basis. Right. You belong to a larger group and you have responsibilities to that larger group and that larger group has responsibilities to you. We play that out in religious communities every weekend for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And if we're really good, we play that out every day. Yeah. Right? Right. And if you extend that to the larger community right. uh, that, that beyond the doors of your religious entity, then you really do care for, for everybody. And then you ask the question, what's best for all of us mm-hmm. and for the world in which we live? That, that is not a bad way to begin a form of governing, uh, you know, rules of the community of how we interact with each other. Uh, you know, I think you, you mentioned the way churches, say, operate religious communities um, as well. Uh, in all of our faith traditions, we try not to favor the rich over the poor. In fact, that's part of the argument that we have all the time organizationally. Is the chair of the finance committee the biggest giver? Is the, you know, are you just letting the deacon chair or the president of the congregation be you know, wealthy and, you know, are they dictated or are we actually treating one another as equals regardless of our economic status or our educational status, those sorts of things. This is something we strive in our religious communities to do. And then what's ironic to me is how often the minute we leave the doors of the, the faith buildings, we argue privileges. And we argue that we live in a Darwinian society, essentially, and that, you know, it's winner take all, and that we have no responsibility to include our neighbor in the safety net or in on ladders of opportunity. And uh, we want to keep our taxes low so that we profit and somebody else doesn't get a handout. This is, it's like we're, we're bifurcated uh, in our, in yeah. our and part of that, George, comes to, like, Raj Chidi is an economist out of Stanford University. He did his education at Harvard. He's a smart guy, right? Uh, Raj uh, came up with, he leveraged some big data uh, going way back to kids growing up and then uh, followed them into adulthood, looking at their tax uh, returns and things of that nature. And uh, so it's this longitudinal uh, study uh, and they basically, out of that, came up with like five indicators for poverty in America. And the number one indicator was segregation. Wow. Now, somebody in, you know, in Dallas, Texas, or in Jackson, Mississippi, when we hear segregation, we automatically think of race. Yes. Well, that's not the kind of segregation Chidi's uh, um, work talks about. It's, it's economic segregation. Wow. Uh, the, the greatest segregation in this country is based on the fact that rich people live in rich neighborhoods 
poor people live in poor neighborhoods and middle class people live in middle class neighborhoods. Rich people never actually go into another neighborhood besides rich people's, right? The the lower, the people who live in poor or middle class neighborhoods end up getting into those neighborhoods sometimes, but it's usually as laborers. And so the wealthiest people in this country are, are truly isolated from the majority of this country and they 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 do not know they do not know how bad it is in america Mm. uh and and the people who do are living towards the bottom and so that is a that is a radical issue that we're facing in the united states and and as policy continues to create a a country of haves and have-nots the only thing right now that's separating the United States of America from a country that would be considered a third world country is infrastructure. The economics is already there. It's the infrastructure that's left and that's crumbling. And when our infrastructure crumbles and it's, and it's, it's in the process of crumbling right now, there's no difference between the United States of America and a developing country in the world. And when you talk infrastructure, you're not just talking about roads and railroads and things of that nature. You're talking about public schools. Uh, you're talking about health, uh, access to health care. You're yep. talking about uh, all the kinds of things, uh, access to healthy foods uh, yep. and things like that, right? Absolutely. I mean, access to access to food or and healthy food is one of the biggest issues in rural space. I mean, uh, a lot of our places live in food deserts where they have to go 10 to 15 miles to get a, a fresh leaf of anything. Right. Uh, in, in a city, I think it's three miles because of public uh, transportation, but uh, mm-hmm. there's banking deserts where uh, places don't have access to capital. And then the capital that they do have access to is, is payday lending and, and predatory lending. Uh, and so there's a, there's banking deserts mm-hmm. uh, that, that this is a, this is a real problem in the United States. And again, we, we don't see it because we are so segregated based on uh, our neighborhoods and economics. Well, I know you grew up in the Delta of Mississippi and our church uh, takes uh, mission trips and uh, has a relationship with the people there in Shaw, Mississippi uh, and in your home region there. And uh, in, in the very few minutes we have left, Jason, can you give us some hope? You work for Together for Hope. Yes. So what are the signs of hope you see and the directions of hope that grow out of these kind of projects? I'll say this. Um, my, my grandmother was an illiterate sharecropper. Mm-hmm. And when she was 12, 13 years old, her, her dad said he would give her a quarter if she could pick 300 pounds of cotton in a day. That's, a, that's about a, what a full-grown a full man could pick, and it's a quarter of an acre of land. And she picked it. And he said, here's your quarter. Now that you know you can do it, go do it every day. And that's how she, she never went to school. She was born and raised in cotton fields. Uh, she died poor. Um, as the hardest working woman I've ever met in my life. And, and that's my whole family worked like that. And we were always poor and we could never get ahead. And so the idea that you can work and, and make it, and, and that is a myth that, that really doesn't exist in this country like it once did. 
so I, I don't want to, I don't want to lead with like, give us open with that story, but I do want to say uh, in that same vein, when I go across the America in rural space, we, we focus on assets-based community development. We go into towns and say, what do you have? And it reorients the town and, and they always leave going, we have more than we thought we did. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of say, all right, now you're the reframing ambassadors for your town. Whenever somebody talks bad about your town, say, hey, but we have X, Y, Z. Uh, and that is a, it is a powerful thing because no matter how bad it is or how economically poor or how much of a poverty of hope or a poverty of trust or a poverty of love exists, as long as you have people, you have assets. Wow. People are the greatest assets of these right. small towns. There we go. And, and, and I think as from a religious standpoint, it's because you have all these images of God walking around, caring for each other, loving each other in the midst of the pain and suffering. There is always hope. There's always assets if you have people. Well, there couldn't be a better place uh, to uh, put a period on this conversation and maybe even an exclamation point. Jason, you have uh, really brought together the good and the God uh, for this good God conversation. Thank you for the hope you've given us for the good analysis and for uh, lots to chew on as we think about how we're part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Jason Coker, thanks for being with us. Thanks, George. Okay. Thank you for tuning into Good God. We're grateful to provide this for you during this time of COVID-19 isolation. And we hope that it is a consolation to you during this time. There have to be lots of ways that we reach each other. And even though we can't be in a studio as we normally are producing these, we're finding the technology using Zoom and, and communicating it to you through this programming. Uh, we hope that you'll find it to be encouraging to you as we make our way through these difficult days.